All right, thanks to the Earth Matters team. Uh, welcome this week uh, to this week's edition, sorry, of News from the Drug War front, <coughs> front. My name is Jeff, and my co-presenter is Marion. Good morning. Good morning, Jeffrey, and good morning, listener. How are we all? Actually, I know we've got three this morning. Well, five, really. If you count Pete and Jack. G'day, Tark. G'day, Trace. Hiya, Mary. Hi, Jack. Hi, Pete. Hello, gang. How are we? It's a beautiful morning. That's why I'm so mad and it's over lovely. the top, Jeffrey. Nice to see you, Marion, isn't How it? How are you, darling? Yeah, look, the, the weather lifts your spirits. There's Doesn't no doubt it? about it. Yeah. yeah. After all that rain and cloud, it makes you depressed and want to stay inside. The well, sun shines. It was and great I'm... for weeks, wasn't oh, it? Oh, and... yeah. Feels like it anyway. Yeah. Very, but very... And I feel so sorry for those people that are getting flooded out. The world is mad, Jeffrey. Well, what about the tornadoes in oh, those states in the yeah. US? Like... And that um, volcano is still pouring still, out. It's yep. been going for, what, three weeks now? That's just mad, yeah. yeah. And there's one in Java, in the middle of Java, that's pouring out now. <sighs> no, look, you want a, another dial. bizarre weather story? Just wait a day. And <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, if you haven't heard anything, don't. Yeah. Anyway, look, good morning to everybody and how are you? Just before we do all the things that um, we need to do about karma, I want to remind people the naloxone program is being run on Thursday at the Early Morning Centre, December the 16th it is, so that's this week, Thursday at 2 o'clock. So ring Dave or Damo on 62533643 because... If you haven't done it yet, you should do it and have some naloxone. I know I'm going to do it because I need some more naloxone anyway and you never know, things change all the time. So I need that information again, probably because, you know, I'm old now anyway But and I forget stuff. But I need to know and we all need to know how to look after ourselves and each other. Oh, well said. And the worst thing it would be to come across a... Uh, you know, an overdose um, situation and, and not be caught short with naloxone. And all you need to have is a puffer. Exactly. It's not all hard. All it takes, yeah. And yeah. if it's not an overdose, that's it's not going to do anything. Yeah? No, it's, it's not, not going to hurt. hurt anyone. Yeah. All it does is reverse the impact of opiate overdose, overdose opioid overdose. Indeed. And I believe there are spots still available for this Thursday yeah. at the early well, morning centre. I haven't so. rung up yet, but Dave, if you're listening, put my name down on the list because I want to go and do it. Awesome. Because yeah. I gave mine away. Encourage so. everyone um, who's got a friend or family member who's an Absolutely, opiate user. yeah. With the illicit or, you know, prescription yeah. opioids. And come and do it. Nobody's going to... It doesn't matter whether you use or not. What you need to know is how to reverse the effects of opioid overdose. And, by the way, um, we've just heard that Josh... He's leaving hepatitis. Josh ACT. Andler's up. We've yeah. had him on the program twice and was looking yeah. forward to having him again. Yeah, and, and that seems to happen. What happens? They come on the radio show. What are we doing to people, I, Jeffrey? I hope it's nothing to do with it. <laughs> I hope it's not our fault. Anyway, but, but yeah, Josh, just says well, I love you, darling. I don't know where you're going, but look after yourself. Yeah, an it's important personal that, decision yeah, is what he said stuff. in his um, official announcement. Yeah. So wish him all the best. Lovely yeah, man. We do. He's a beautiful person. And, of course, Karma collaborated with Hepatitis ACT with Reach, Teach, Treat, and Hepatitis think, C. You know, that collaboration probably would have been largely um, motivated by Josh. Well, not saying that Karma wouldn't have wanted to do it, but without Hepatitis, there wouldn't have been a, a collaboration to have, would well, they? Well, they did the blood test. They, yeah. Two organisations to make a collaboration at least. So, Absolutely. Yeah, very sad. No, wish Josh all the best. Yeah. Okay, welcome listeners to this week's News from the Drug War Front brought to you by Karma, which is the Canberra Alliance for Harmonisation and Advocacy. Karma is a peer-based, community-controlled drug user organisation with over two decades serving the ACT. Now, the aim of the show is obviously uh, to give some news as to what's happening in the world uh, of the drug war or uh, prohibition. And we will do that. Yeah, yeah well, we've actually got two very interesting... great stories. UK stories. Yeah. Um, one of them caught my eye. Uh, the Tories are waging war on drugs, but there is cocaine all over the parliamentary loose. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was <laughs> what, quite telling. Yeah, what a surprise. <laughs> um, but, yeah, we've got some UK stories and a great opinion piece by Maya Salovitz on... Um, Who wrote the book about the history of harm reduction in uh, basically San Francisco. Listeners might have remembered that. But um, anyway, she's got an interesting, hard-to-pronounce last name, but she writes really interesting stuff, and it's largely about uh, drug use and 
uh, radical or rational um, approach to drug use and drug users. Yeah, well, as a guest they say in the Washington Post, I think it's entitled Opioids Feel Like Love. That's why they're deadly in tough times. Yeah, but yeah. But, yeah, it's definitely um, worth... Uh, Listeners, hanging on for that one. Okay, so um, obviously, yeah, we report the news, uh, discuss uh, the prohibition paradigm as we see it and uh, point out its uh, failures and um, the damage it's done. Uh, mm. Since uh, Australia ratified the 1961 United Nations Single Convention on Narcotic Drugs and that and the two sister conventions basically provide the legal architecture for the global policies that... Um, maintain the war on people who use drugs and we'd like to acknowledge the efforts of peers and activists who've contributed to the struggle against the war on people who use drugs and uh, the show aims to encourage people to think about the issue and uh, yeah just um, open their mind and yeah talk about each other. Yeah, yeah we want to inform people and get them talking about it so if you hear something on the show that you think is interesting well if you don't think it's interesting you're not listening properly <laughs> but talk to each other about it yeah you know talk loudly on a tram or something let people think about what you're saying think sensibly about drugs and drug use and what's illicit and why because after all and what alcohol does to people is you know nobody's business <laughs> And the effect on, uh, you know, the cancerous effect of alcohol, which is legally available, and, you know, what's happened over the lockdown, although, the you know, they say it hasn't increased people's drinking, but that just means we must have been drinking a hell of a lot before lockdown, huh? I think in certain periods it's gone up, but it hasn't yeah. been consistent, you know. Yeah. Anyway... Look, Karma provides a wide range of services, and we should tell you about that because it sponsors this show. So it's, um, the, the services that uh, client... So there's... The, come on, Maz, get your face together and your mouth. The connection is also co-located with Karma. Karma and Connection provide client advocacy, peer treatment, support, education, creative arts, mentoring and referral. Um, the connection is... Canberra's peer-based drug and alcohol service for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander clients um, and that's really important because we need to address the issues from Indigenous perspectives as well and can't pretend it doesn't happen in the Indigenous community as, as well as... Any in other community. Any community, <laughs> yep, everywhere. It doesn't matter what your background. There'll be drug and alcohol consumption within that community. Um, anyway, those services are co-located in the Church's Centre, Shop 17, Level 154, Benjamin Way, Belconnet. Drop-in is open again and the hours are 10am to 4pm, Monday to Friday. And the office phone number is 6253-3643. So Karma can assist people with a wide range of issues, including... Opioid maintenance and treatment, not providing it, but getting people involved on it, in it, the program if they need it. So methadone, buprenorphine, and more recently the long-acting injectable forms of bup, that's buvital, and sublocade. So treatment for hepatitis C, the impact of stigma and discrimination, and we'll discuss that, Jeffrey and I will, in a little while, because so much relates to discrimination in the ACT. It's just ludicrous, particularly what's been going on and uh, the waiting lists at um, the, uh, the hospitals, the hospitals yeah. in the ACT is just ludicrous. And then if you're a user or if you're not a user, but if you're not, you know, if you're Indigenous, a woman, and, uh, and ask for something that looks like an opioid like codeine and you happen to be sick and they'll just sit you next to somebody who's gone in with COVID and make sure that, you know, you get well and truly sick. Well, you can be put in the quote-unquote drug-seeking behaviour so, category. Oh, this which... drug-seeking behaviour <laughs> makes me want to just spit chips, Jeffrey. really. Drug-seeking behaviour. You know, go and ask for penicillin. Is that drug-seeking behaviour? It seems at odds with the, you know, the Hippocratic Oath. Yeah, absolutely. Really. First, do no harm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Anyway, all the fish issues that are faced by people adversely impacted by prohibition and the war on people who use drugs. Which, sadly, are many and varied. It's, absolutely. Um, it, it's a real Really frustrating issue, isn't it? Really, oh, um, yeah, very much so. Anyway, um, 
the contents of the news from this news from the Drug War Front broadcast do not necessarily reflect the views and or policies of the Canberra Alliance for Harm Minimisation and Advocacy. Karma does not condone, but nor does it condemn drug use, and it does not promote illegal activity. Karma recognises that drug use happens, and as such, Karma focuses on harm reduction messages, drug treatment support services, advocacy and community development. Karma seeks to reduce the harms associated with drug use as well as the harms associated with the criminalisation of drug use through the provision of empowering programs that concentrate on community development, person-centred holistic health care and equity of health service delivery for all people. Yeah. Just treat people like people. That's right. Yeah. What it just, comes down to. Humanity, that's all it is. Look, and, and I just want to reiterate, there's a um, training program, an overdose recognition and response with naloxone workshop is scheduled for Thursday, December the 16th. That's the day after tomorrow at 2pm at the Early Morning Centre on North Lawn Avenue. Um, book a to book a place called Dave or Damo on 62533643. That's the Karma phone number. Um, alternatively, you can drop into the Early Morning Centre and talk to staff there and make a booking from them. Indeed. But do that. All right, we'll go to our first song. You've picked this one from the Pretenders uh, compilation CD, and it's um, Chrissy Hind with the band UB40 in a collaboration of I Got You Babe. Indeed. All oh, right, that was Chrissy Hind with the uh, collaboration with UB40 of the song I Got You, Babe, yeah, which was Sonny and Cher, wasn't that? Yeah, included Sonny and Cher and UB40 and Chrissy Hind's got the whole lot in there. Yeah. Oh, and the rest of the pretenders, of course. It was a bit of a classic. Okay, uh, welcome back. It's quarter to 11. You're listening to News from the Drug War Front with Jeff and Marion. Uh, we've got a story. It's about a week old, but it's on um, the basketball legend, uh, Lauren Jackson, who has yeah. been trying to deal with her issue with coping with pain from inj sports injuries with prescription painkillers by using medicinal cannabis, which um, is quite interesting. It is. And the first subheading is she was just six years old when she paid, played her first game ever of competitive basketball for a local under-10 side in her hometown of Albury. Unbeknown to those watching, the, this basketball prodigy was destined for greatness. The first uh, Australian player ever to be inducted into the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame, Lauren Jackson is regarded as one of the world's best ever female basketballers of all time. And she's quoted as saying, it feels like a bit of a dream now, it really does. I feel like a completely different person, which I am, but looking back, I was so fortunate to have played basketball at that level and to have competed at such a high level for so long. A two-time uh, WNBA champion with the Seattle Storm, 2004-2010, a three-time Most Valuable Player, seven-time WNBA All-Star and overall number one draft pick back in 2001, Jackson also won four Olympic medals, three silver and one bronze, and guided the Opals to a coveted World Cup victory back in 2006. Sadly, a degenerative knee injury cut her phenomenal career short, forcing her to retire in early 2016, denying what would have been a fifth Olympic in Rio de Janeiro. Mm, no fairy tale ending. Uh, it didn't end the way I wanted it to, she said. There were highs and some pretty big lows as well. Jackson underwent countless surgeries during her career and often resorted to painkillers, chronic debilitating pain around her hip, knee and lower back continued to plague her after she retired. Um, I've been open about my battle with prescription medication during my career and when I retired I went off everything because I wanted to raise my kids and just be the very best version of myself. After consulting her GP, Jackson explored alternative treatments to pain and was prescribed medical cannabis. It's been incredible, she said. It helped me a lot and gotten me to the point where I'm able to train again and live a very active lifestyle with my two little boys. Jackson is part of a new sports advisory board run by Melbourne-based sports medicine company Levin Group that develops pharmaceutical-grade medicinal cannabis for the treatment of chronic pain and concussion. She hopes her personal experience will help reduce the stigma associated with medicinal cannabis. Well, I think it will, Lauren. I'm really glad. That's why we're doing this story, well, and that's why you've been on TV. It's Some great. of her stature, it's important. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's a terrific, you know, voice to be speaking on our behalf. It's something I personally believe in because of my, how my body has handled, has handled it, she said. 
I just want to get the message out there and hopefully help change people's lives. She hopes a personal experience will help reduce the stigma associated with medicinal cannabis. New kid on the block. Dr. Rowena Mobs, a neurologist from Macquarie University, claims there's mounting evidence for cannabinoid therapies and medicinal cannabis for chronic use for chronic pain. Quote, but as far as management of head injury and concussion in general, this is really the new kid on the block, she said. Doctor, well, I must admit it was a surprise to me to hear that it was useful for concussion too. Um, Dr. Mobbs works with concussion patients on a regular basis, including athletes with multiple concussion and repeated head traumas. Quote, we see this medicinal cannabis debate in epilepsy and pain management and understand people would want to try every option, she said. Medicinal cannabis was first raised as a potential therapeutic option in the 1930s and there's evidence of cannabis first being used medicinally as far back as 400 AD. Quote, in head trauma, we're interested in researchers in as researchers in understanding it may have a benefit but it's still early days Dr Mobb said we're yet to see the detailed trials come out for cannabinoid but it's still the certainly but it's certainly the theory is there and in that many regions of the brain contain cannabinoid receptor type 1 another area being explored is whether it may have potential benefits as an add-on or third-line therapy this is where alternative therapies are considered after a patient develops resistance to initial and secondary treatment options. Uh, Dr. Mobbs is quoted as saying, we see patients more than a year after their concussion, truly in the post-concussion syndrome, where they've tried post-traumatic migraine therapies without success. Dr. Mobbs said. So these people may wish to reach out to cannabinoid therapies and medicinal cannabis. Look, I've always thought there, who knows the scale of the, treatments. Yeah, that... the, amount, the number of things that cannabis can be used for. I must say, I might add, that that's one of the reasons that opioids became attractive to me was migraines. I had migraines non-stop. Haven't had one since I started using Never had one while I was using. Yeah, my sister had migraines. They're pretty debilitating. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, the piece concludes, like any form of medication, there can be side effects involving short-term memory and concentration. Uh, and as a quote, we think largely cannabinoid therapies are safe, but there can be side effects such as changes in sleep patterns, appetite, nausea, and high doses can have intoxicating effects, she said. More severe psychological side effects can include paranoia and agitation, but these are rare at low doses. For those wishing to explore medical cannabis for chronic pain or concussion-related uh, injuries, Dr Mobbs recommends chatting to your local GP and carefully considering all options. It's a sentiment, uh, sentiment echoed by Lauren Jackson, who's finally loving life after basketball. Quote, I've got two little boys who are starting to figure out that mummy was a basketball player, and I get to share mm. those stories with them and watch YouTube clips, which is pretty fun, she said. Though it may not be long before we see another basketball prodigy. prodigy. My little bloke is actually playing hoops, which is really cool, and I'm like the mum in the corner cheering him on. I have to stop myself and be like, Lauren, settle down, he's only four years old. <laughs> what a great piece. And it is. I'm so pleased that she's come out about it too. It's really useful, and she would know as well as anybody else. I mean, Lauren lived in Canberra for such a long yeah, time. that's right. And has uh, a lot of friends, uh, some of whom I know, and I'm not just dropping names. Yeah. But so she knows that the issues surrounding illicit drug use are many and varied, and the discrimination and its stigma in particular is um, really quite overwhelming and demeaning, absolutely bloody demeaning. It just infuriates me the way we're treated. And it makes it very difficult for people to come out in public and talk openly about their experience like and, this. Indeed. I mean, why, why is the hepatitis, you know, council funded when the majority of people with hepatitis are injecting drug users? I don't mind that hepatitis ACT exists in quite the opposite, in fact. Um, but it's just that the discrimination with injecting drug users um, is such that they, people will not come out and identify as, it as hepatitis um, positive 
if it means being associated as an ID yeah. Yeah. being associated with injecting drug users. Yeah. So that's crazy. Yeah. Anyway. No, it's very difficult. And that uh, I don't often give credit to the federal government, but actually making the direct acting antivirals available to anyone who was hep C positive without any caveats or constraints or your liver had to be this badly affected or you had to be abstinent yeah. for a certain amount of time, which are the sort of rules well, applied in a lot of places. When we first were using, not the DIAs, but the, you know, the interferon. First, the interferon was just, yeah, you had to behave particularly well. You had to have a strict dietary regime, you know. Your behaviour had to be abstinent, you know, or you weren't getting them. Yeah. Yep. And when you didn't get it, it was horrible anyway. Yeah, the side effects will be The beauty of these direct-acting... Antivirals. <laughs> antivirals, not antiretrovirals, Marianne. Antivirals is that they have but very few side effects, if any. And a 95% plus Success rate. rate. Oh, and I have a friend today who has just been informed that she is um, hepatitis... Uh, see free. Fantastic. So congratulations to you, Trace, if you're still listening or if you're, cause you're halfway down the coast by now, I should think. Um, so congratulations to her and she has a, um, what, 100%, I think, something, some phenomenal amount anyway. Her liver function test was just over the top. It's just Fantastic. great. So, and that's from being on that, um, New the treatment. New treatment yeah. through the and through the hepatitis council. Fantastic. Through hepatitis ACT. So I'm really pleased, you know, it's yep. actually and she feels better. She looks better, behaves better. Oh, well this is behaves what we better. Hear. I don't know, Trace behave better, nah. <laughs> we hear that from a lot of people. They just got more energy, their heads yeah, clearer. It feels like doing things. Yeah. It's incredible. Look, before we go to the eleven o'clock news, so just a little bit of a quick update. Uh, a lot of people remember um Jude Byrne who passed away in March of this year. Um had a chat with uh, Dr Anna Olsen yesterday and both the APSAD board and the Drug and Alcohol Review um, Journal board have been having a discussion about how they may best honour Jude's life and contribution to the field and the idea that Anna was floating was um, publishing an obituary in the Drug and Alcohol Review. Yeah, it's a lovely idea. Which is a lovely idea and perhaps maybe a small special section of four to six articles in memory of Jude and links to some of her speeches or things that she's written. Yeah, um, some of the things particularly from the early days would be really good. Look, I, you know, remember from... Day one, of course. Well, not day one, because I was overseas when she got employed. But, yeah, so from the early days, women have been around from the early days and remember, Jude, when she was running active, because there's a lot of stuff recently that could be, uh, that can be talked about. But stuff from the really early days when active was up at Ainsley. And it was really really good. Tough back then. You were really groundbreaking. Absolutely. Um, And, she, yeah, she was doing some fabulous stuff up there. Yeah. yeah. Look, I was in Melbourne back in those days, and I heard you know, Jude's name and later yours yeah. um, way back in the dark days. Yeah, you know, no, and when she was doing some absolute radical things, you know, the holidays for kids down the coast and, you know, for drug users. And the, the idea that women with kids might need a holiday... Um, was just and that it might be acceptable. It was just fabulous. Yeah. It was just terrific. Really, yeah, yeah ahead of its time and yeah. and really yeah. important. And I remember in many times just you know, wandering around Civic and bumping into people whose kids had grown up who remembered yeah. going on holidays. And, and the reason they got totally vaccinated was because they went to playgroup and they had and the nurse was there. No, they're just fabulous. And along that line, um, starting next year on the 4th of February will be um, the Jude Byrne Women's Support Group, which um, yep. Monica, Monica and Monica's running. Yep. are going to be running. So we'll promote that a little more extensively. We'll talk about that later on. It's nearly t- yeah, we've well, got a little bit of time for the news. But, but it, it'll be a support group for women who have involvement with CYPS uh, and it'll be addressing alcohol and other drug issues, uh, domestic family violence, mental health issues, engagement with services and family functioning, family functioning which yep. is really... Great. Yeah, look, it's going to be fabulous. It's a great idea. I'm glad it's been, you know, named after Jude. It really does identify the source of really a lot of issues for women, drug users and their kids. And really, I'm glad that, you know, it's been named after her. Good on you, Mom. Me too. Yeah, I think yeah. It's, um, it's a really... Uh, and it's a really appropriate yep. um, project too. It'll just give women the opportunity to... 
come to and meet other women who've got the same interaction with CYP. In a safe, secure environment. That's right. Yeah. All right, so we'll take a break for the 11 o'clock news and yep. we shall return after the news. Indeed. All right, it's four minutes after 11. Welcome back to this week's News from the Drug War Front, brought to you by the Canberra Alliance for Harm Minimisation and Advocacy on 2XXFM 98.3. Uh, People Powered Radio. And just while I'm mentioning 2XX, um, if you are a supporter of 2XX and you have the opportunity to be a financial supporter or if you've got a few spare hours, maybe uh, volunteer your time in uh, some capacity. There are many tasks that um, 2XX would be very grateful to get uh, your assistance with. Or just um, being a general supporter of 2XX, um, I would encourage you to seriously consider it. Our show's been on 2XX for over 15 years, and there's something like uh, 80 original programs produced by volunteers and broadcast each and every week on 2XX, which is the second oldest uh, community radio station in the country. Um, just a quick uh, report. Every two years, Harm Reduction Australia provides an opportunity for people working or associated with drug and alcohol programs the opportunity to have their say on policies and issues affecting the sector and wider community. The survey takes less than five minutes. I've already filled it out and can be accessed um, via their website, Harm Reduction Australia. Responses need to be submitted by the 31st of January 2022, so we remind you of that uh, into the new year. And in keeping with Harm Reduction Australia's commitment to transparency, the results will be made publicly available as soon as possible. Uh, and that's from Gino Vumbaka, who is president of Harm Reduction Australia. All right, might go to a quick song and then we'll come back with a couple of UK stories. This is Velvet Underground and Waiting for the Man. All right, that's the classic uh, Velvet Underground, uh, Waiting for the Man. Yeah. Um, yeah. Certainly remember that uh, many occasions. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, won't we always? Yeah. <laughs> All right, it's coming up about four minutes after 11. You're listening to News from the Drug War Front with Jeff and Marion in the 2XX studio. And we promised we were going to talk about the UK situation. There's been a change in drug policy by the Tory government. And the first piece is by Zoe Williams, and it's entitled The Tories are waging a war on drugs. But there is cocaine all over the parliamentary loose. Yeah, which sounds about right, doesn't it? It does, yeah. <laughs> I would say hypocrisy is not... Well, um... the reason we got needle exchange in the ACT, Geoffrey, was because it um, was only if um, diabetics could have free needles as well. Well, they always could, couldn't they? Uh, From when NSP's up, but you're saying that's the reason why. The reason we got needles and syringes provided to injecting drug users was on the basis that because the guy who was the Minister for Territories was actually a diabetic. That's interesting. So they had to spend spend 15 bucks to buy their needles. Well, for years they used to complain that they, oh, we have to pay for our needles and junkies get them for free, but they don't. That was the only reason we got needle and syringe programs was... If we gave them to everybody, yeah. diabetics in particular. And so the Diabetics Association actually got them given to them so they could hand them out. Yeah, of we... course, not everybody has to do, you know, in, use get their insulin that way anymore. No, but back, to back in the day with, it was. was fine. Yeah. Yeah. All right, uh, the subheading is Boris Johnson is making an all out attempt to move the headlines on. But all I can think about is last year's alleged Downing Street Christmas party, which has been. Yeah, been that's news. been all Huge. over the news, yeah. hasn't it? It's a terrible thing when you hear a man sweat through the radio. The Home Office Minister, Kit Malthouse, was being questioned by Michelle Hussain on the Today programme uh, this morning, uh, a couple of days ago in the UK, about last year's Downing Street Christmas party. If it was as described, two score people at least in the same room, drinking and playing party games, then how could it have been within the rules? Quote, this is hypothetical, Malthouse kept saying, as if he was tapping into an ancient interview woo-hoo, the magic word you could say to make it all stop. Unfortunately, he was not. Finally, he executed his handbrake turn. He couldn't comment on his part on the party because he didn't uh, know what had exactly happened. He couldn't find out what had happened because he was much more focused on the war on drugs. <laughs> Mired in terrible headlines, one story of corruption or incompetence after another, each untoward event reminding the world of some past promise that never materialised, the Prime Minister has seized the agenda by the throat. He now has a new enemy, drug dealers, a new feral underclass, drug takers, and a new initiative, take away all their passports and their driving licences. A new slogan, it's a war on drugs. And a new load of old Blarney. Drugs, they're not going to make you cooler, Johnson said. <laughs> they're bad news. Oh, my God. 
Not since Samo's rap has made such has such an unarguable message had such a counterproductive messenger. Nothing has ever made me want to take drugs more than this wreck of a man telling me that they're bad news. And I'm writing this at nine o'clock in the morning. <laughs> There's so much to pick apart in the initiative. The, quote, war on drugs is, in fact, not new. The war is as old as the drugs, and the drugs, so far, have always won. Taking away drug users' passports is obviously chillingly authoritarian and will surely be travelled on, uh, challenged on civil rights grounds to the point that it never materialises as policy. But it's also peculiarly lacking in insight. The last thing an addict wants to do is go abroad. It's way too risky to take drugs with you and, adds ju and just adds 10 layers of complication to the business of buying them. I know this firsthand, having once found myself in Latvia with another Briton who was a massive cokehead. He had no prior knowledge of what a Latvian drug dealer looked like spoke no Baltic languages and was armed only with the rumour that there was cocaine in Russian cough medicine. <laughs> <laughs> cocaine. We ended up in a pharmacy trying to do a cough in a Russian accent. <laughs> Fair play. We didn't have the internet then. Maybe it's easier now, but I would guess only fractionally. This passport idea is like removing a bicycle from a miscreant fish. <laughs> Recent history teaches us, however, that it takes far more. It takes more for an initiative to fail than simply for it to be stupid and make no sense. <laughs> Happily, there is more, because just as Johnson was delivering his half-asleep lecture, some newshound was texting the toilets of Parliament to check for traces of cocaine, and, what do you know, finding plenty. <laughs> in the toilet next to Johnson's office, in the one at the top of the store stairs in Port Cullis House, and in the one at the bottom, for brevity, let's say pretty well all of them, there is a, this is a scoop as old as time. I remember being sent to the Royal Opera House scouting for Gacky and its lavatories in the 90s. Lacking any inherent news value, this kind of exercise is only ever undertaken for mischief, but nobody could have planned how all these stories would swirl together in the emotional segment of the brain. People in Westminster take drugs at work while the Prime Minister sermonises against drugs. Government officials partying while the government enjoined the nation not to party. I'm past caring about the hypocrisy and would prefer to be locked down forever than engage in what it, whatever the hell conservatives do for party games. <laughs> yeah, God forbid. What would they do? Oh, no. But I'm quite worried about how they're all going to conduct their government business without a passport. <laughs> oh, that's a classic. That's priceless. Zoe Williams is a Guardian columnist. Beautiful article. And that is, that's you know, that echoes straight down the line Doesn't to it? Australia. It does, yeah. yeah. Do not believe anything anybody says because it's bound to be exactly the opposite of what they're doing. And there will be a vast uh, whiff of hypocrisy. Yeah, um, pretty much, yeah. yeah. What's happening here federally? Yeah. They haven't been talking about um, drugs, but they sure as hell have been talking about sex. Yeah. Yeah, but they don't do that. None of them do sex, and mm. they certainly don't do it without permission. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're going to the next... Um, uh, Sister piece. Um, yes, yes, absolutely. I think this is a great idea. Kojo Karam from The Guardian, December the 8th. The Tories don't want a modern drug strategy. They prefer outdated macho rhetoric. <laughs> While the world moves on towards an evidence-based approach, the UK government is still stuck in the past. For Oscar Wilde, the tragic paradox of Victorian philanthropists was that their, quote, remedies do not cure the disease. Indeed, their remedies are part of the disease. He could easily have been talking about the British government's approach to drugs. This week, the government announced its new 10-year strategy to, quote, combat illegal drug use, with the Prime Minister claiming that it's been a long time since the government said drugs are bad and dangerous. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Shamelessly dressed up as a cop. I mean... To announce the new strategy. Yeah, I mean, that's so Boris, isn't it? Yeah. Boris Johnson's message to drug gangs is that there's a new sheriff in town. These bold proclamations appear a little overblown. 
when considered against the fact that this is at least the sixth new drug strategy that the UK government has announced in the past quarter of a century. God. This purportedly groundbreaking new drug strategy admits that the current policy is not working <laughs> and then promises to continue heedlessly with its failed vision. <laughs> oh, I love it. Just repeat more failure. Yeah. Despite umpteen millions being thrown into enforcing prohibition over the decades, it recognises, quote, that the global availability of drugs is higher than ever before and that we're registering record levels of drug-related deaths. But the Prime Minister refused to even consider suggestions that the UK learn from more radical models of a drug policy reform being implemented across the world, dismissing talk of decriminalising drugs by saying, quote, there is no evidence that uh, that's the right thing to do. <laughs> Since when has he ever needed evidence for anything? Well... I guess when he wants to justify <laughs> when he want not to do acting, it. yeah, yeah not, not doing it. He must be receiving his global drug policy information from the same source that told him there was no need for a lockdown in early 2020, despite the rest of the globe shutting its borders. Yeah, around about Freedom Day, I suspect. When politicians dismiss radical drug policy reforms, they tend to present a false dichotomy a macho crackdown or free for all legalisation. In reality, around the world, we see a number of different policy approaches that could be transformative for both users and society at large. Legalising the cultivation, trade and use of some recreational drugs is very much a real-world option today, as we've seen with cannabis in Uruguay, Canada and 18 states in the US last month, and, by the way, supposedly in Australia. Last month, Germany's incoming coalition government confirmed that it would also legalise the sale of recreational cannabis as part of its economic program. Others have adopted a policy of decriminalisation, where drug possession is not legal but is not criminalised. Instead, it's treated as a minor civil offence, similar to parking on, a double, on double yellow lines or travelling on the train without a ticket. Decriminalisation has been employed most comprehensively in Portugal, where, following a rise in drug-related death rates, uh, in 2001 the government decided to decriminalise all drugs and redirect the money that was being spent on policing them into public health. The result was a fall in the drug-related uh, drug death, infectious disease transmission and the overall social costs of drug use. For intravenous drugs, there are safe consumption rooms that exist in Spain and Switzerland, among others, where users who are going to inject anyway can at least, so, at least do so in a safe and clean environment. All of these ideas should be under discussion by any government that's serious about tackling drug harm and looking at the evidence of what works. Because the Conservatives' new drug strategy is a missed opportunity for the UK to join the global sea change in drug policy. The government is dusting off its old Atari PC while the rest of the world is discussing the pros and cons of cryptocurrency. Much of the language used in the strategy document dates back to before some members of the Cabinet were born. <laughs> Once again, there are promises of tough punishment for drug gangs and commitment to the entering uh, commitment to the commitment that the government will crack down on hard drugs and renewed assurances that we can stop drugs entering the UK once and for oh, all. Oh yeah, how do you do that? Yeah. What to stop all yeah. trade and absolutely headlines this week proclaiming that Boris Johnson unleashes all-out war on drugs could almost have been copy-pasted from any time in the past 50 years. Journalists repeated tired claims that half of all murders, robberies and burglaries are linked in some way to drugs, which has been debunked by academics since the 1990s. Such exaggerated claims rely upon an assumption that when an offender is found to have been engaging in drug use, it was the drugs that caused the criminal offence. As Alex Stevens, Professor of Criminal Justice at the University of Kent, stated, by that logic, 100% of murders are water-related. <laughs> <laughs> it really is just a rehash, isn't it, of, you know, it Nancy Reagan. Is. Nixon, Ray, uh, Nancy Reagan's yeah. just say no, Howard's tough on drugs, yep. any number of... 
stand well, when if you've got nothing to say say what somebody else said yeah only another in another version you know with different using different words and make it a brief slogan that yeah sort of make it a one-liner it's always works black and well, white you know yeah. drugs are bad okay? that's right <laughs> and it's always a moral approach yeah you know without a doubt yeah, now there's something peculiar to, and I know you've always said that there's the issues of taking drugs and what you do with your sexual proclivities are bound up in morality, but it's it's such an issue that does um, evade dispassionate, objective discussion yeah, because of yeah. that as soon intrusion. As you throw in that emotion, you can't, you know, fail to be able to discuss it rationally because people become invested in it, yeah? Their heart is somewhere there. In fact, their relationships are within that whole discussion. They can't go any further than that. And when you bring emotions into it, logic and the flies capacity... Flies out the window. Yeah, flies out the window. That's yep. really sad. Anyway, the piece concludes. Buried underneath all the tough-talking headlines, the new strategy contains some limited good news for those concerned <coughs> Excuse me, with evidence-based drug policy. There is a commitment to restore significant investment in drug treat in the drug treatment and rehabilitation services that have had been cut to the bone under austerity uh, policies. But this wasn't uh, the part of the strategy that the government emphasised. Instead, ministers pushed the idea that this drug strategy would be different from previous incarnations because they would not go easy on, quote, middle-class drug users, threatening to remove the passports and driving licences of those convicted of drug offences. Presumably, upper-class drug users, like several members of the Cabinet, who've admitted to previous experimentation, will be able to continue to indulge in their favourite substances with impunity. Furthermore, a failed policy that has devastated the lives of Britain's poorest communities and most marginalised racial groups does not suddenly become effective when you promise to extend it to the middle classes. Though it may sound impressive to some Conservative voters, this reheated, quote, war on drugs rhetoric is the ultimate expression of feelings over facts. Mm-hmm. The evidence shows that just increasing punishment does not deter drug use. The demands, demand for drugs appears to be pretty inextricable uh, from human life and has been for thousands of years, tied to the need to numb pain, isolation and trauma and deeper urges to experience the extremes of pleasure and intoxication for the brief period of time that we are alive. That's a great way of putting it, isn't it? It is, yeah. That historic demand is not going anywhere, and as long as the, ma- the demand is there, people will be working out new ways to meet it. You cannot hope to stamp out drug use. You can only make it safe. The government's drug strategy should start from that basis. Indeed it should, indeed it should. But will it? Uh-uh-uh-uh. Well, no. it just sounds like a rehash and of the I'll same I'll tell you why, and really, although we should probably discuss that a bit more, the really interesting thing is... If we go on to Maya Sabovitz's article, the first line of that, which is, opioids feel like love, that's why they're deadly in tough times, is I had told myself that I'd never try heroin because it sounded too perfect. It's like warm, buttery love, a friend told me. Now, I just think... That's a great you know, opening After that last, those last two pieces... That explains why, you know, if that's going to affect you emotionally like that, yeah. everything that All Boris slogans Johnson's in the saying, they just nah. do anything. That's right. Look, we'll get, we'll get to Myers' piece. Of, I'll, I'll play a song. This is uh, one of our favourites of the show. It's Warren Zevon's Carmelita. Oh, good old Carmelita. It's sad Take ballad. me higher. It's a beautiful, beautiful track by it Warren Zevon. It is Zivon. a beautiful track. Gee, that's a powerful ballad by Warren Zevon. Oh, Carmelita. beautiful, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. Beautiful song. All strung out on heroin on the outskirts of town. Yeah. Okay. Carmelita, get off your butt and go and do it. How come the girl always has to go and do it? Well, because that's the story. That's what's well, always happened. Back in the day, that's the way things seemed to go down. Yeah. There was a great deal of sexism in... Um, uh, indeed. And don't say it hasn't ain't gone yet. No. Ain't gone I yet. I doubt that's... Um, changed no enormously not at all i don't think all right welcome back to news from the drug war front uh, as marion mentioned with the first um, sentence of uh, the guest essay by Maya like love from Myers, the myers from the washington post this was on december the 6th so it was last week last monday but um, we didn't get it in time for the show but it actually goes quite well with the theme in this show which is uh, Really, more about opioids and uh, about the 
you know, the availability of currently illegal drugs and the usefulness um, and harm reduction. Anyway, Maya says, uh, does some really interesting articles. She's the one that did the harm reduction story, if you remember, did the book on the development of harm reduction from San Francisco. But this is for the Washington Post. I had told myself that I'd never try heroin because it sounded too perfect. It's like, quote, warm, buttery love, a friend told me. I'm, as I said to Jeffrey before, I used to say it actually felt like um, hot chocolate um, and that it, or a marshmallow, a hot chocolatey marshmallow that filled you up from the inside. When I, did not yield, when I did yield to temptation in a fit of rage over a boyfriend's infidelity in the mid-1980s, everyone's got an excuse for why they started, haven't they? That's what I experienced, she said. It wasn't euphoria that hooked me. It was relief from my dread and anxiety and a soothing sense that I was safe, nurtured and unconditionally loved. Science now shows that this comparison is more than a metaphor. Opioids mimic the, neuro, mimic the neurotransmitters that are responsible for making social connect, connection comforting, tying parent to child, lover to beloved. The brain also makes its own opioids, those endogenous ones that include endorphins and enkephalins that are better recognised for their roles in pleasure and pain, but are also critical to the formation of maintenance of social bonds. One 2004 study found that infant mice without certain opioid receptors did not show attachment to their mothers. Hmm. As the United States tries to end the opioid crisis, which, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, resulted in more than 75,000 overdose deaths from April 2020 to April 2021, this biology offers important insight. America can't arrest its way out of a problem caused by the fundamental human need to connect. Mm, exactly. Indeed. Times of uncertainty and economic inequality tend to be associated with higher levels of opioid addiction. Some of the biggest risk factors for opioid overdose are social disconnection and using alone. Pandemic lockdowns, while sometimes necessary to combat the spread of disease, increased loneliness and physical and social isolation. If policymakers want to effectively treat and prevent addiction, they need to recognise why opioids have become attractive in such circumstances. By doing so, addiction can be viewed with greater compassion. That'd be nice. Indeed. The connections between brain opioids and motherly love were first explored by the neuroscientist Jacques Panksepp decades ago. Dr. Panksepp, who died in 2018, told me that when he first tried to publish data, when he first tried to publish data connecting brain opioids to attachment, he was rebuffed by a top medical journal. His research showed that morphine in doses so low that it didn't cause sleepiness eased separation cries made by baby animals in multiple species. Wow. Mm. The idea that the purest and innocent, and most innocent love between parent and child could have any commonalities with the degradation of heroin addiction was, quote, just too hot to handle, Dr Pansep told me. Today, however, decades after he published his work in another journal, what is now known as the brain opioid theory of social attachment is now widely accepted. When people nurture children or fall in love, hormones like oxytocin are released, infusing memories of being together with endorphin-mediated feelings of calm, contentment and satisfaction. This is one way that social contact relieves stress, making bonding a fundamental protector of both physical and mental health. When we are far from our loved ones or sense that our relationships are threatened, we feel an, an anxiety that is not unlike withdrawal from drugs. Quote, when people experience an opioid high, they feel warmth, safety and love, said Stephen Chang, an associate professor of neuroscience at Yale. That's because opioid systems have evolved in part to fuel the good feelings that people get from spending time with friends and family, he explained. There are many factors that contribute to addiction and isolation is often one of them. During the past several decades, an overdose 
as overdose death rates have quadrupled in the United States, social isolation has increased. One study reported that uh, from 1985 to 2004, the size of an average American social network fell by a third, and the number of people who said they had no one to confide in tripled. A 2018 survey found that only about half of participants felt that they had someone to turn to all or most of the time. The COVID pandemic may have actually increased this. A 2021 study found that over 60% of young American adults reported that they are either frequently lonely or lonely nearly all of the time. Mm -hmm. The link between opioids and feelings of love and connection also offers clues as to who is most vulnerable. People who experience childhood trauma and neglect are at a high risk for opioid addiction. And I think that's um, borne out by my uh, oh, yeah, experience. I think so too, yeah. People with mental illness or developmental disorders, which often bring isolation, are also highly susceptible. Low or falling socioeconomic status raises the risk for opioid use, in part because it can erode social ties. Mm. Research has also shown that low social capital which is a measure of how much people feel connected, trust one another and are part of their communities, is strongly linked with overdose fatalities. One study that looked closely at individual counties found that those with more civic organisations, non-profits and greater participation in presidential elections and the census, all of which are linked to trust and social networks, tend to have fewer are far fewer overdose deaths. Conversely, neighbourhoods riven by poverty tend to have less social connectedness and more overdoses. Understanding the nature of opioids and addiction should help policymakers, policymakers, policymakers better care for those who suffer from it. Instead of punishment, people with addiction need the chance to learn healthier ways of coping which will require a variety of resources. And that's not sending them to jail. Indeed. It doesn't give you any access to a variety of resources. It's the uh, university of crime, actually. Some need psychiatric medications, which you'll end up having to take for life, including opioids themselves. Long-term, this is in brackets, long-term use of methadone or buprenorphine is the only treatment proven to cut the death rate from opioids by half or more. Some need therapy or stable housing or meaningful work. Some need new friends and many need all of the above. None need jail for simply trying to feel okay. Mm. To paraphrase the writer Joanne Hari, Johan Hari, sorry, the opposite of addiction isn't abstinence, it's love. Maya Salavitz is the author of most recently Undoing Drugs, the untold story of harm reduction and the future of addiction, as I mentioned to you at the beginning of this section. Quite an interesting guest essay. It's a really interesting um, approach to it. the, The continual discussion of you don't have to ask the question why. I mean, I guess that's the point, isn't it? Whenever you see people using, asking people why they use is, you know, can be answered in one word or three words. It makes me feel good. It makes me feel good. Five words. It's really quite easy. Uh, people don't do things that make them feel bad unless they have to. Uh, so really, drug use, alcohol use, whatever it is people are doing, and particularly with opioids, have a particular approach. That, I mean, people need them. People get out of drugs what they want from them. That's why they use the drug they use. Amphetamines, what do they do? Keep people awake and let them be active and complete stuff, hopefully complete stuff drive long distances, whatever, do things for a long period of time. Cocaine, creativity, opioids, emotional connection. You you know, Hmm. everything has a... People get out of the drugs what they want from them. They don't use the majority of drugs just for the benefit of using that drug, just for using the name. The name has nothing to do with it. It's called that because it is. Yeah. 
It's that, a complex issue with human it, beings, like any behaviour. Yeah, it, it's, it is complex, Jeffrey, but it's simple in that if you ask people why they, they do what they do, they do it because it makes them feel good. Yeah, yeah. it meets and the then need that they It's like, have. and we do say this every week, and I do reiterate it, I know it's boring to people, but if something makes you feel good, you're going to repeat the activity. You know? And the problem with the debate about drug use is when it's emotional, when it's filled with emotional content, when your approach to drugs is a positive uh, approach or a negative approach emotionally, when the debate is based on that, you don't get any further mm. with that debate than yeah. I cause, because I don't like it or because I do like it. It's a it. self-limiting... It closes it down. Yeah, yeah, like yes or no. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Finish the discussion. All right, uh, we'll play another track and then we'll uh, wrap up this week's show. This is uh, The Animals and San Franciscan Nights. Uh, sadly, seems to be some uh, problem with that CD. Um, yeah. Will we go to... Failing to thrive. Nobody has no opioids. Editorial from the Washington uh, Post about uh, tough on drugs policies have failed. Supervised injection sites will, in fact, save lives. Let from us December do that. the 7th, yeah. Indeed. I mean, this is an issue that. that has just been anathema in the US. It's been a blanket no to any suggestion of safe injection sites for so long. Um, well, for as long as I can remember. But anyway, this is um, the editorial board of the Washington Post. New York has become the first uh, US city to allow supervised injection sites for illegal drug users. This strategy may seem counterintuitive as US drug overdose deaths reach unprecedented levels. In fact, it's a smart and compassionate approach which other countries have already tested and it will save lives where tough on drug policies have failed. Quote, every four hours, someone dies of a drug overdose in New York City, said Dave Choksi, the city's health commissioner, as he announced the authorisation of two sites in Manhattan where people can use illegal drugs under the supervision of trained staff who can intervene in the event of overdose and provide users with treatment options. Users must bring their own drugs. Two organisations that run needle exchange programs formed the not-for-profit the not-for-profit not, not group that operates the inject, injecting centres in East Harlem and Washington Heights. Within just a few days since the start of operations last week, at least, at least nine drug overdoses were reversed, according to the Mayor of New York, Bill de Blasio. Proposals for supervised injecting sites in other cities have stalled amid questions about whether it is legal or ethical to greenlight illegal drug use. President Donald Trump's Justice Department sued a block um, a site to block a site. Yeah. Sued to, so, to block a site in Philadelphia, arguing yes. that a federal law, the, the so-called crack house statute, prohibits operating a facility quote for the purpose of unlawfully using controlled substances. End quote. It almost sounds like you know running a, a um, running a whorehouse, yes, running premises for the for, purposes uh, prostitution. of prostitution. Yes, selling prostitution, selling women's body, or selling sex. The article goes on. Whether the Biden administration will be more sympathetic remains to be seen. Mr de Blasio sent a letter to the site operators promising the city would take no enforcement action against them and that all of the city's district attorneys, save for Staten Island, support the facilities. Mr de Blasio is in his final months in office, but Mayor-elect... Eric Adams, who's a Democrat, who takes over in January, has also expressed support. That's good. A feasibility study conducted by City's Health Department estimated that the program could save up to 130 lives a year. Drunk overdoses, as Dr Choksi noted, are a public health crisis. Nationally, more than 100,000 people died of a drug overdose in the 12-month period that ended in April. Well, they said 75,000 in the last article, but, you know, I guess we can take it somewhere between 75,000 and 100,000. Still way too many. Yeah, too many. In New York, more than 2,000 people died of, a, died of a drug overdose in 2020, the highest total since the city started keeping track in 2000. Critics of supervised injection sites say they enable and encourage drug use. Uh. But countries that have pioneered the program, 
including Canada, have shown promising results in preventing deaths and directing users to treatment. And Sydney, the the research, the statistics from Sydney state, you know, without flat out, people are going to do it anyway. Yeah. They might as well be alive to give up at least. And it's or even if they don't give up, stay alive. In zero stop, fatalities in yeah, over 20 years. Yeah, littering the streets with dead drug users. There's no magic bullet, the article goes on, to combat drug addiction. But one thing is clear, a trained person on site to respond to someone in the throes of an overdose can save that life. That reminds me, don't forget Thursday, the naloxone program. The Biden administration, hang on, the more US cities should embrace the opportunity to prevent needless death. The Biden administration should stay out of the way and Congress should change federal law to clarify that local governments can authorise this life-saving work. No more people should have to die before attitudes finally change. Well, here. I hope the Biden administration will um, offer something a bit of a... You know, a new approach, but I wouldn't put my last dollar on it. Well, I hope he just keeps on focusing on COVID, yeah, and keeping that same rational policy. So if you want to reduce illness, disease, and transmission of that disease, your best bet is to do practical things. Follow the science. Yeah, evidence-based policy. Follow the science. All right, we'll go to another track. Let's hope this one will work. This is JJ Kale's Cocaine. Let's hope this CD is not defective. <laughs> okay. All right, that was JJ Kale and Cocaine. Just in the last uh, few minutes of this week's show, I just thought we've um, got Nick uh, in the studio as a casual worker at uh, Karma. Nick, you were involved in the quarantine centre at Ragusa, is it? Yeah, um, Karma's been involved in uh, working at the quarantine centre at the um, the Ragusa quarantine centre which is at the well was at the Olivia Caravan Park um, we'd uh, where's the Olivia Caravan Park it's in O'Connor in O'Connor yeah. okay yeah, yeah. I, I thought that might have been it yeah, yeah it's, it's a nice spot yeah yeah nice. yeah no it's a beautiful area although I imagine it's hell for a lot of these people but yeah yeah but um, yeah, if, basically, if you didn't have anywhere to quarantine, um, or you were suffering with homelessness, or yeah, well, no, they've got some nice little units up there. Yeah, that, it's a great place. Lots yeah. of people used to stay there. Yeah, no, no, I'm sorry. You get, you get your own sort of bungalow. Um, so you know, most people had issues at home, or they didn't want to infect family members. Perhaps. Yeah. So the, the the issue was trying to find a safe place for people to quarantine while yeah there was a range of issues um we we were working with the uh non-governmental organizational support hub which had a number of teams so there's the ymca directions uh karma and um csd which is material aid um uh, basically we just helped karma's side was to help people with uh whatever drug and alcohol issues they might have including withdrawal from alcohol. We might provide that if they're um, struggling monetarily and they're at risk of withdrawal. Well, there is a serious risk of withdrawal yeah. with your yeah, regular drink. Yeah, we actually did say that too. We did. We was, yeah, yeah, we were yeah. saying that karma would be helping with alcohol withdrawal if there was a problem. Yeah, yeah it's a, it's a, it's amazing. it was an amazing service for these people because some of them just couldn't afford. So is it not operating anymore? Uh, no. So um, we finished up last week. Um, but who knows what's going to happen in the future. But yeah. There was no more clients uh, or residents there. There was one last family. So. Were there plenty of people coming through? There was a lot of people initially. There was a, a huge amount. But yeah. in the end, it was just mainly people who were stuck there homeless. Yeah. And we couldn't yeah. exit them. And needed to be somewhere that they, yep. so they were undercover. That's right. And yeah. safe. Yeah. And identifiably somewhere. Yeah, yeah. which is hard. It's very because, difficult, I you would know, think. Yeah. There was a limited amount of hotel uh, accommodation you could get, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've heard a lot of positive feedback from people who spent time at Ragusa and about yeah. all, all the organisations, you know, because yeah, they mean, collaborated. You, you could get a lot done. If you had some things you needed done, the, the support hub could help you a lot. You know, you could get a house, you might get, you know, your fines fixed or whatever to sort out your life because you've got a team there helping you 24 hours, so... So it's good. 
It was a That's really good right. experience. And people went on to other accommodation after that, did they, as well? They got helped um, into accommodation? Yeah. We, That's good. They couldn't be exited into the community. Some people chose to. But, yeah. Um, yeah, a lot of them went into close quarantine. Some of them got into transitional housing. Okay. But yeah, it yeah. is hard at the moment, so... Oh, nice one, Nick. It'd be good to perhaps have a more extensive discussion about the success of that. Definitely, um, yeah. Um, and uh, the other aspects of um, the COVID work that comes. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, which was incredibly yeah, which important. We, yeah, we knew it, though, doing and did, but didn't hear a lot about Rigus. I knew it was happening, but didn't hear a lot about it. So I'm pleased yeah. to know about it. I yeah. guess, um, you know, it's a, it's a lot, there's a lot of privacy issues, so you're not yeah. really doing much of it other than talking to people. Yeah. <laughs> and... Um, but that's it's important. It's incredibly boring for people there who are staying. So it's a bit of a hell and a, and a heaven there yeah. <laughs> in a lot of ways. But, but it, it's a support in practical ways. That's right. Yeah. If you utilise it well, it would be really beneficial. That's really awesome. Thanks for that, Nick. We'll, Thank uh, you. we'll get you back Thanks, to Marianne. do a more uh, extensive report perhaps in the future. Thank you. All right, that takes us out from this week's show. Thank you, Marion. Yeah, thank, thank you, listeners. Jeffrey. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Linesman. Thank you, Bull Boys. Indeed. We'll leave you with the theme song, uh, The And we'll see you next week, and we love you all. Take care. Yeah, take care, everyone. Bye for now. Bye.